Welcome to PD Heart, Pediatric Cardiology Today. My name is Dr. Robert Pass, and I'm the host of this program. I'm Professor of Pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, where I'm the Director of the Pediatric Cardiology Division. Thank you for joining me this week for our 68th episode of the podcast. I hope everybody had an opportunity last week to listen to our episode on the effects of IV antirhythmic agents on cardiac function. We spoke with Dr. Elizabeth DeWitt of Boston Children's Hospital, who provided great insight into an understanding of what these agents actually do to the myocardial function. For those of you with an interest in postoperative cardiac management, as well as the management of acute arrhythmias, I'd strongly recommend you take a listen to Dr. DeWitt on last week's episode 67. As I say each week, if anybody would like to get in touch with me, it's easy to remember my email. It's pdhart at gmail.com. This week, we'll be moving on to the world of the Fontan, a topic which is always interesting and important. The title of the work we'll be reviewing is Maldistribution of Pulmonary Blood Flow in Patients After the Fontan Operation is Associated with Worse Exercise Capacity. The first author is Tarek Al-Sayed, and the senior author is Raoul Rathod, and this work comes to us from Boston Children's Hospital, Harvard Medical School. When we're done reviewing this paper, Dr. Rahul Rathod has graciously agreed to speak with us about this important work. Therefore, let's move straight on to the article, and then we'll speak with Dr. Rathod. This week's work starts with some comments about the importance of optimizing the hemodynamics of any Fontan patient, and the increasing knowledge of the cardiac MRI and its role in predicting potential Fontan patient issues. One of the more important quantitative measures the MRI can do for us is to accurately assess pulmonary artery flow. And the authors state that some prior works have suggested that up to 45% of patients who've had a Fontan have maldistribution of pulmonary blood flow if using the definition of a flow difference of greater than 20% between the pulmonary arteries. The causes for maldistribution are myriad, but the main theory is that the ascending aorta may compress the pulmonary artery, something which is often seen in the hypoplastic left heart patient. Additionally, some patients may have lung hypoplasia and some others may even have pulmonary vein compression, which will affect pulmonary flows. The relationship of these sorts of maldistributions of flow on exercise capacity is largely not known, and for this reason, this study was conducted to study the impact of maldistribution of flow on exercise capacity and clinical outcomes in patients following the Fontan. This was a retrospective study assessing all postoperative Fontans from the large database at Boston Children's Hospital, and the investigators searched for all patients who had a cardiac MRI study and cardiopulmonary exercise stress test between January of 1999 and July of 2017. Patients were included for analysis if differential pulmonary blood flow could be calculated by the CMR and if they had a maximal effort on exercise stress testing, defined as a respiratory exchange ratio of greater than or equal to 1.09 or a heart rate greater than or equal to 75% of predicted. If there were any interventions performed between the two studies, they were excluded from analysis. The authors reviewed the details of the CMR performed, and for those with an interest in CMR, I would recommend you take a look at this paper for details. Clinical parameters were also assessed with review of many clinical parameters, including arrhythmia history, heart failure type, type of Fontan, clinical status, liver disease, PLE, and many other Fontan-related issues. The exercise testing was performed using a calibrated cycle ergometer and RAMP protocol with gas exchange testing. And on to the results. 147 patients met inclusion criteria and were studied. The median age at CMR was nearly 22 years, and median time between the two tests, CMR and exercise stress tests, was only about three months. 
the mean branch pulmonary artery flow was 56% to the right and 44% to the left. Maldistribution was seen in 53 of the 147 patients, or roughly 36%. Patients who had maldistribution of flow had lower mean percentage predicted VO2, 60%, versus those without maldistribution of 65%. On multivariable analysis, factors associated with lower percentage predicted VO2 were maldistribution of flow, defined as more than a 20% differential, time since Fontan, and ventricular mass to volume ratio. In follow-up of an average of four years, 10% or 14 patients died or were listed for heart transplantation. The deaths were attributed to arrhythmias, heart failure, renal failure, or PLE, and the presence of maldistribution of pulmonary blood flow was not associated with these poor outcomes. In looking for causes of maldistribution, the authors performed a multivariable logistic regression analysis, and only pulmonary artery compression by the ascending aorta or aortic root was associated with maldistribution of flow. The LPA, as expected, was affected in the vast majority of patients. In their discussion, the authors state that this work showed that patients with maldistribution of more than 20% flow had lower exercise capacity compared to those without this form of maldistribution of flow. They then address the elephant in the room, which is that this difference seems fairly small, only 5% difference in percentage predicted VO2, but then they point to prior works which showed that there was a hazard ratio of 0.88 for mortality for each 1% increase in percentage predicted VO2 in Fontan patients, and they suggest that this measured difference of 5% in this study would potentially be clinically significant based upon these prior data. They also re-emphasize that the most common cause of this distribution abnormality was compression of the ascending aorta, and speak of efforts by surgeons to try and avoid this complication of hypoplastic left heart syndrome. The authors mention the fact that pulmonary size and blood flow were only weakly related in this analysis, and suggest that these data would suggest that reliance solely upon pulmonary artery size might not correlate well with differential pulmonary flow and that the CMR likely is preferable to assess this. In trying to understand why exercise capacity may be impaired in these patients with maldistributed flow, the authors state that this form of flow differential may result in VQ mismatch with less efficient gas exchange in the lungs. And they also wonder if in Fontan patients, there may be subtle increases in Fontan pressure, which result in more venovenous collaterals causing desaturation, which we know from many other works has been associated with poor exercise capacity in those with congenital heart disease. They also review the fact that this finding may also be associated with power loss in the Fontan, and that with exercise, these differences may be exaggerated, and wonder if exercise studies in the CMR scanner may help increase our understanding of the relationships between maldistributed flow, power loss, and exercise capacity. And so the authors conclude that in patients after the Fontan operation, maldistribution of flow to the pulmonary arteries was common and seen in over one-third of patients. Lower exercise capacity was associated with this finding, as well as time since Fontan and increased mass to volume ratio. The authors state that maldistribution of flow to the pulmonary arteries is an important risk factor and potential target for therapeutic intervention in this fragile patient population. As I think about this paper, I must admit that I am somewhat surprised regarding these findings. Clearly, there was a measurable effect on exercise with pulmonary flow maldistribution. However, I do wonder how important this is. 
The authors point to data showing that small changes in exercise capacity can be associated with changes in outcomes, and yet this work shows that a 20% differential in pulmonary blood flow, an amount that I believe most would say is quite substantial, and yet the actual reduction in VO2 max percentile was only 5%. True, this has been demonstrated to be associated with worse outcomes, but ultimately, this does call into question how aggressively we ought to address these disparities in flow, and also how aggressively we ought to assess this in the first place. First, we've learned that the angiogram may be misleading, and so it seems that only the MRI can provide these data accurately, and this therefore means that all of our pacemaker and ICD patients at the present time will not be able to be assessed in this manner. Second, once we do determine if there's a disparity in flow, the question arises as to how aggressive we ought to be in addressing these differences. We all know that given the risk for thrombosis, most interventionalists will recommend warfarin for a stent in the pulmonary artery of a Fontan patient. Is this sort of drop in VO2 max percentile equal to the challenges of warfarin therapy in a Fontan patient? For me, I think probably when you take into account the new knowledge we are developing regarding long-term elevations in IVC pressure and the impact on fibrosis of the liver, Probably these data further support the idea that anything we can do to normalize the percentages of flow and also simultaneously lower Fontan pressure and resistance to flow is likely to have a positive impact on Fontan circulation. At this time, I think we should discuss this paper and its implications with its first author, Dr. Rathod. Joining us now to discuss this work is Rahul Rathod, who is a non-invasive imaging staff member of the Department of Cardiology at Boston Children's Hospital. Dr. Rathod is a graduate of Case Western Reserve University and completed his residency and chief residency at that same institution. He then completed his general cardiology fellowship, followed by non-invasive fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital, where he continues to work in all areas of non-invasive imaging, with a particular interest in cardiac MRI and use of this technology to predict outcomes in the single ventricle patient. It is a pleasure to welcome Dr. Rathod to the show today. Welcome, Dr. Rathod. Okay, we're here now with Raul Rathod. Dr. Rathod, thank you so much for joining us this week on the podcast. Uh, thanks, Rob, for inviting me to join. I, I really applaud your continual efforts using this medium to facilitate a com conversation on all these congenital heart disease topics. I think it's a great service for our community, and I'm sure there are patients who are listening as well. Well, that's very um, kind of you to say, Rahul. I really appreciate that. Um, I wanted to acknowledge uh, my first author on this patient, Tarek al Siedi. Yes. He really did a great job and deserves a lot of credit. I'm sure that's true, and I'm glad that you did that. Thank you. So, Rahul, I very much enjoyed this paper. Quite intriguing. The impact of flow maldistribution in Fontan patients on exercise study outcomes in your study was about 5%. To the uninitiated, this doesn't seem very profound, considering that this was only associated with a 20% difference in flow, fairly substantial. Do you have any thoughts about this? In other words, is this actually a very important difference, and were you surprised that the value was smaller or larger than you might have predicted before you did the study? So, it's a great question. I, I think that Fontan patients represent a vulnerable population, and we need to identify as many risk factors as possible for all the clinically important outcome measures. And there have been a lot of studies looking at exercise capacity as a clinical endpoint. Our data show, I would actually argue, a relatively mild maldistribution of pulmonary blood flow um, of only 20% had a measurable impact on uh, peak percentage uh, predicted VO2. And so while that difference was only 5%, you know, every bit may actually count. Yeah. There was a study of 300 Fontan patients where they showed that 
percent predicted VO2 was an independent predictor of mortality, and that a hazard ratio that they had a hazard ratio of 0.88 for each one percent increase in uh, VO2. So the state a different way and probably a little bit oversimplified. Each one percent change in VO2 in a Fontan patient is associated with 12 percent increase in mortality. And we also know that you know the Fontan exercise capacity decreases with age, but in these models the maldistribution of pulmonary blood flow was still independently associated with decreased exercise capacity, even when we corrected for times in Fontan. Interesting. So I guess uh, then, in other words, uh, quite a significant finding uh, then. Um, you know, uh, Rahul, I was wondering, given that many Fontan patients have implantable devices, which would generally preclude a uh, cardiac MRI, and also given that nuclear studies that assess perfusion probably are not very helpful in a Fontan patient because of the technical limitations, uh, how would you recommend that these sorts of flow calculations be performed in these patients? In other words, the patients in your study obviously were all patients who did not have devices, but as you know, a large percentage of older Fontan patients do have pacemakers or ICDs. How, how in those cases would you recommend that these, it sounds like, very important calculations be made? Yeah, it's a problem. Uh, you know, for sure, the older patients are more likely to have these stainless steel coils or similar ferromagnetic devices that create the artifact that, allow, that preclude the assessment of the anatomy or, for example, in this case, flow assessment. And some have the older style pacemakers that are relative contraindications contra to CMR imaging. But there is some evidence that, uh, in a growing body of evidence, that you can still do imaging in select patients under carefully managed conditions. Yeah. And there are newer devices, as I'm, I'm sure you know, and uh, especially with with uh, leads that are conditionally safe, making all of this less of an issue. Yeah. But at the end of the day, there really aren't any. There are not a lot of good non-CMR options for the quantitative assessment of pulmonary blood flow in Fontans. Yeah. I mean, you, you alluded to it. I mean, nuclear perfusion scans are notoriously, notoriously inaccurate um, because you have differential streaming of IVC and SVC blood flow. This has been pretty well shown by uh, 4D flow assessment and computational fluid dynamic modeling. Um, and so to my knowledge, I don't think we have a great alternative that's at least available for routine clinical use. I see. I've, I've hypothesized that you could use this um, dual energy CT technology to measure differential pulmonary blood flow in Fontan patients. Huh. But I, I don't think I've seen a report or any validation of this concept yet, and definitely not in Fontans. I see. Yeah, well, that's a definite limitation and a, a big problem. Someone's going to need to have to figure this out because I, and I think someone's going to need to figure out how dangerous it truly is to do an MRI in someone who has epicardial leads. I think someone's going to have to take a take a stance on this because so many of these Fontan patients have epicardial leads and you can have an MRI compatible device or conditional device, but those epicardial leads, we still have concerns about the possible risk for an MRI in those patients. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so I was wondering, uh, Raul, you, you mentioned that uh, the actual size of the pulmonary arteries in your study were only weakly associated with the flow differences. What other factors account for flow differentials, uh, and there are, are there things we can do about these to actually improve the flow? It's a great question, and I'm, I'm pretty sure we don't have all the answers. Our data suggests that pulmonary blood flow in Fontans, it may be clinically important, but the etiology here is um, clearly multifactorial. You know, 
prior PA interventions or the use of patch material can alter the capacitance of these vessels, differential pulmonary vascular resistance, or even slight degrees of subclinical pulmonary venous obstruction can play a role. Yeah. And, and we always talk about pulmonary vascular resistance because it's easy to measure, but it's actually probably pulmonary vascular input impedance that kind of has a larger role with pulmonary blood flow. That's obviously a little bit harder to measure. Mm. And then you can take it to the next level where, you know, the, the, the RPA and the LPA geometries are very inherently different. You yes. know, so if you have right-sided cable structures, your RPA often comes off immediately from the baffle and your first-order branches kind of bifurcate very quickly. But the functional LPA is, is quite is longer. And at least in our data, it shows that a dilated ascending aortic root can be one mechanism where you get malabsorption of blood flow. So in a super long-winded answer, it's a multifactorial uh, physiology that explains why PA size and, and flow are probably weakly correlated. Yeah, it's definitely a complicated problem for sure. Well, now I guess it's time to come towards the end of this interview. So I'm going to ask you, uh, shall we say, the million-dollar question, which is, how do you personally use these data to inform clinical decisions? In other words, the only way to improve flow in many of these patients is placement of a stent, which, of course, requires the need for anticoagulation. Based on these data, do you have an algorithm that you use in deciding when a stent should be placed in a patient whose PA size is discrepant and may be contributing to a flow maldistribution? Do you have any pointers in regards to how you make those calls? Well, I'm going to back up to start with kind of state my kind of over, overall philosophical bias when it comes to Fontan surveillance. Um, we've made some progress over the decades in terms of post-Fontan survival, and there's some good data from the Australian-New Zealand registry and the Mayo group that are kind of modern cohort of Fontans have improved survival. But it's super clear that there are increasing morbidities as these patients age. Yes. And, you know, that change can be slow, and then our patients adapt, and so a lot of this pathophysiology remains closely beneath the surface. And, and some people will call it a honeymoon phase, but then all of a sudden your patients are li really limited or they're sick. But that, I'd argue that pathophysiology has been there all along. Yes. So given that the long-term stakes here are high, I, I feel like we need heightened surveillance and maybe lower thresholds for interventions when our patients are healthier and less clinically symptomatic. And so this paper is just a small part of a larger effort saying that we should use our modern tools, CMR is only just one of them, to identify those Fontan patients who might need intervention. So to answer your question, we can use, if you can document maldistribution primary blood flow, you know, maybe that's a physiologic uh, consequence and justification to take that patient to a cath lab to dilate and very likely stent. Yeah, I'm I, not sure that every every patient who gets a PA stent needs Coumadin, for example. Yeah. But um, and hopefully we'll have some better anticoagulation uh, novelty agents to use in the future. Sure. We unfortunately we don't have an algorithm at Boston Children's, um, at least a concrete, well-defined one yet. Um, but there are some national efforts afoot uh, to create recommendations for surveillance. And then maybe one day we'll have the data to justify when to do what, uh, what type of intervention. Yeah, I have to say that as we're learning more and more about the older Fontan patients, I find myself becoming increasingly aggressive in the cath lab when I see what look like fairly minor uh, narrowings in the pulmonary arteries. I, 
I'm always thinking about the liver and other issues on the th thinking to myself that even a minor improvement in the pulmonary resistance to flow may have some uh, long-term impact. So I think that the importance of your study is just further confirming the fact that these what seem like relatively small changes or problems with flow can actually be associated with quite substantial morbidity. Yeah, I would say that, no, we should do everything we can to optimize the Fontaine pathways and PA dilations and Fontaine interventions. They're kind of relatively low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Um, you know, we, I don't have all the data to support this, but I would hypothesize that increasing our surveillance, maybe maybe lowering our thresholds for relatively, I would say, safe interventions. Yeah. With what we can do to improve cardiac output, increase exercise capacity, and as you, and as you said, maybe slow the progression of liver fibrosis. Uh, well, before we get off uh, this interview tonight, and I really am very appreciative of your being on. For those in the audience, it's fairly late on a Tuesday evening. I, you had mentioned off-air that you're actually starting a large-scale registry of MRI studies in patients who have Fontan physiology. I'm wondering if you might share a little bit of this uh, effort with the audience. There's been a, you know, a traditional approach where we all kind of report, and, and this, this is just one example, our, our single-center data and our single-center outcomes. Um, but we kind of need to move to the next stage, and we have to collaborate. We have to share our data. We have to pool our data. Um, and so in this, the, there's a group of us uh, who are leading an effort to create the, what's called, the, we're calling it the FORCE registry. It's the Fontaine Outcome Registry using CMR examinations, so FORCE. And we um, hope to open this registry uh, in the next year or two. Um, it's going to be across North America and Europe. We, we hope it's going to be one of the largest data sets of its kind. And with the goal here to create improved risk trafication models so we can help identify which patients need our help when and yes. uh, maybe do those interventions a little early so we can get the best long-term outcomes for our patients. Well, that is certainly a very exciting effort that you're describing. I guess all I could say in a punny way is may the force be with you in that effort. <laughs> Uh, you bet. <laughs> well, okay, I'll, I'll admit that wasn't all that funny. But anyways, I think uh, I would uh, very much like to thank you for coming on this week. I think people are going to find this discussion very interesting. It's quite clear that we, unfortunately, although we know a lot about Fontan patients, I think uh, what we don't know certainly exceeds what we do know. And I'm very appreciative of all your efforts. And thank you so much for discussing this all with us this week on the podcast. Thank you, Rob. It's, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you. I hope that this week's discussion with Dr. Rathod was of interest. Once again, we've learned that what we do not know about Fontan patients and Fontan physiology is substantial, and I'm excited to learn of Dr. Rathod's upcoming FORCE registry assessing CMR studies in large groups of adult Fontan patients. This work is yet another in our series demonstrating novel findings in our most fragile adult congenital patients, the single ventricle patient group. And I am sure that through the sorts of large registry data sets that Dr. Rathod is proposing, as well as others, such as the Australian one we discussed just a few weeks ago, our understanding of the consequences of the Fontan will grow. And I'm hopeful that these data will help us better understand better ways to both surveil and then optimize the hemodynamics of our Fontan patients. To conclude this 68th episode of the podcast, we'll hear the wonderful Cuban-American soprano Lizette Oropesa, 
who is this year's 2019 Richard Tucker Award honoree. Miss Oropesa was born and raised in the state of Louisiana and was a grand final winner of the National Council Grand Finals of the Metropolitan Opera in 2005. She has sung many roles at the Metropolitan Opera, and today we hear her in a live performance of the wonderful Bravura Aria Sempre Libra that concludes Act One of La Traviata. Thank you for joining me this week for our 68th episode of the podcast. I look forward to seeing everybody next week for episode 69. Oh, que escuro.